Hi everyone, this is Brady from Freedom Talks. Uh, I just wanted to connect with everybody before we get to the interview and just let everybody know that we had a great interview with Dr. Scarlett and uh, Trenton Raymond, who's a PT with us. We had a little bit of uh, trouble with the audio at the beginning and, and through the first half of the interview, but I just want to let you know here that that shouldn't dissuade you from all of the excellent information you're about to hear from Dr. Scarlett. We do recommend that uh, you reach out to Dr. Scarlett if you are experiencing any of the issues that we discussed in the podcast today. Uh, he's uh, excellent to work with, and we obviously love uh, working with him here at Freedom. Uh, and also, Trenton uh, is also available to answer any questions uh, if you reach out to us uh, at freedompt.com uh, or give us a phone call at any of our locations. Please enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Freedom Talks podcast. Uh, this is Brady with you as always, and today we're glad to have on Dr. Scarlett uh, and Trenton Raymond. Dr. Scarlett graduated from the University of Notre Dame and attended medical school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He completed his residency in anesthesiology at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, worked as a trauma anesthesiologist before heading to Washington University in St. Louis for a fellowship in pain management. He was an assistant professor and faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, and uh, Dr. Scarlett has clinical interest in spinal arthritic and cancer pain. Uh, Dr. Scarlett, did I get that right for the most, most part? Uh, yeah, I guess the recent uh, biggest change in my career is happening now. I was with Advanced Pain Management for uh, 10 years, and now I am joining uh, Wisconsin Spine and Pain. Okay. I'll still be in the Sheboygan area. Yes. Okay. Um, our other guest is Trent Raymond. Uh, he's a physical therapist who recently completed his OCS certification. Um, and that certification shows he's equipped to specially handle advanced orthopedic therapy cases. Uh, Trent handles chronic and complex spine cases at Freedom. And that's why we chose him to talk with Dr. Scarlett. Um, how are you doing, Trent? I'm doing well. Thanks for the intro, Brady. Yeah, the, um, it's interesting working with these types of patients. So it's really nice to have these opportunities to talk with Dr. Scarlett. So I'm excited. Awesome. Um, so Dr. Scarlett, I want to get a little, get to know you a little bit more. Um, what, what kind of led you to pain management and kind of give us a general background of uh, how you got to where you are now? Sure. Well, I grew up in a small town called Catlin in the middle of Illinois. It's down near Champaign. And uh, uh, while I was about 17, uh, my mother passed away uh, from, from metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and it really was a, a very painful uh, death uh, for her to go through. And uh, that's what initially uh, got me interested in well, oncology at first, but then later on really pain management as far as being able to kind of ease people's suffering. So uh, when I went through medical school later on in Ann Arbor, uh, definitely took an interest in anesthesia because I enjoyed the physiology uh, and how medications can uh, help relieve suffering in the perioperative period around surgery. Uh, but then with uh, interventional pain management fellowship later on, I was able to figure out how to apply that to people with uh, ongoing chronic pain as well as cancer pain. So it's been, it's been a very rewarding uh, career. It was a convoluted path to get there, but I certainly enjoy it. It has a lot of meaning for me. 
Trenton, how did you kind of come to your interest in kind of why you wanted to pursue that OCS uh, certification? That's a great question. Um, so throughout school, you do your clinicals and you do your training. And I just found that, I mean, there's great PTs with every certification, but I found I learned a lot, especially with manual interventions and clinical decision-making from a lot of these OCS certified therapists. So started digging, seeing what that actually meant and entailed to get it. And it's very difficult. So I wanted to challenge myself to be functioning as a higher level therapist who is worthy of those letters. So that's kind of what got me going down that path. Gotcha. Some of the topics that we want to touch on today are chronic spine and back pain, something that you both are um, really good at treating, obviously, in different ways. Um, and I want to get to know a little bit more kind of behind the scenes in terms of what the communication between a PT uh, and a surgeon like yourself, Dr. Scarlett, uh, goes on um, when you're talking about these really difficult cases and why patients are referred to rehab and some are uh, done with surgical inter intervention and things like that. Um, so I guess, yes, Dr. Dr. Scarlett, can you kind of tell us from your perspective um, how your conversations with PTs go with a lot of your chronic pain um, and what you're screening for um, and why you would send a PT versus say there's a surgical intervention that would work better? Most of the time I talk to the patient when I first meet them and kind of get an idea, there are some characteristics of the patient that kind of guide us about which way they want to go, right? So, I mean, it is their body. They ultimately have the say in, in their treatment plan, uh, but we also uh, try to work uh, in coordination with the physical therapist to, to get the patient the best outcome. So, if someone were to come to me and uh, they were to have, say, uh, horrendous back pain with pain going down their leg, uh, and they were to tell me they don't think that they could uh, under, go through PT because they're in too much pain. At that point, I would give them an intervention up front. Most of the time, that's an epidural steroid shot or an injection into an arthritic joint in their back. And then I send them to PT. The whole thing you have to remember about what we're doing with the interventions is we're decreasing uh, their pain, but that's not always a good long-term solution for people because it's not like these interventions last forever unless they actually put in the work with physical therapy to get their strength back uh, and to kind of help their core uh, to support these structures that have had some compromise in their spine. So uh, really, uh, we don't look at physical therapy as a competition. We look at physical therapists as our colleagues where we're working together to get the maximal outcome for the patient. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say that's um, a lot of what we see is there's a hand-in-hand uh, kind of working together between um, most of the providers and um, our physical therapists, right? I, th I find it interesting, uh, kind of the communication and um, how much communication would you say there is uh, between the, the surgeon and the, the therapist? Not much or just, uh, could you kind of explain that? I, I would tell you on a typical day, a typical work day, I spend about 60 minutes a day in communication with physical therapists. And so most of that communication is just kind of how you want therapy carried out or um, what, what, what is that communication like? If that, if that's because that's a lot, a lot of your day taken up by that. 
It is. Uh, and a lot of it's it's phone calls where I'm receiving calls and, and, and actually calling uh, therapists as well. Uh, no, it's basically discussing how patients doing. Uh, also getting trying to get them in as fast as possible. And that goes both ways with them to us and, and us to them. Uh, and also, uh, occasionally, a, a therapist will call me and give me some insight into, yes, they agree that uh, someone might have a certain ailment in their back, but they also, when working with them, have discovered that they have uh, another musculoskeletal problem uh, that, that I, I didn't initially pick up or that's changed. And uh, they might want to change the therapy uh, slightly to address that. And, and obviously, we always uh, always defer to them on that. You got to remember, a physical therapist is spending uh, you know ten times as much time with the patient as I am uh, interacting with them uh, because of the, the difference in the schedule. So therapists have a lot more time to spend with people, and they pick up some things sometimes that I, that I don't see. So uh, there's a lot of give and take in that, a lot of communication back and forth. How often is it, Trenton, that you would contact the uh, surgeon and say, hey, I feel like this is going on. Could you check that out? Is that a common occurrence uh, that happens with you in your practice? Yeah, it's it's every day. Um, some days more than others. You know, if it depends on how you have um, come in contact with that patient. So, for example, we have direct access as physical therapists. So if I do an evaluation and I see something is like Dr. Scarlett was saying, maybe not physical therapy appropriate or they're not progressing as we thought, we will send them his way because it's either too far advanced for us or we need his help. So in that communication, it's very different. It's like, hey, what do you think? And that's where we lean on him. (laughs) Uh, Then the other way is if we've received that patient like postoperatively, I'll communicate with uh, physicians based on patient progress saying, Hey, we're four weeks out. Here's where we're at. It's going well, or here is four weeks out. And here's some things that aren't progressing as we thought. Do you have any advice? So sometimes it's us giving him the heads up and sometimes it's us, Hey, asking for advice. Uh, So Dr. Scarlett, I want to go over two things. I guess, what is the most common condition that you see? Um, And then what are the most difficult cases that you see um, in your practice? Sure. Uh, I would say the most common thing that we deal with, uh, particularly with an aging population, is uh, lumbar spondylosis, cervical spondylosis, so arthritis. Uh, in the spine, either in the neck region. Uh, some people do have it in the thoracic area, the mid-back region, or the lower back region, which is the most common. Uh, it really, you're talking about something, but after 60, it's it's you know, over 80% of the population. Uh, so it's, it's extremely common. And what's changed uh, over the last 10 to 20 years uh, in pain management is that 20 years ago, a lot of times those, those uh, patients would either go have surgery or go get uh, hooked on uh, <laughs> oxycodone chronic narcotics. The use of, of uh, narcotics in, in America has really, really decreased the last five years and for, for good reason with the opioid crisis that we dealt with. So uh, what has that's opened up uh, it, are people like myself. I mean, you called me a surgeon. I call myself an anesthesiologist, but what Sorry. I'm telling you is I'm doing minimally invasive surgery. So, okay. so it's kind of, I'm, I'm not doing a big uh, lumbar fusion, cervical fusion. I send those people on to people with more formalized training. But what my training is, is really is the minimally invasive procedure. So you could think of me, if you were going to compare uh, myself to 
an interventional uh, cardiologist, right? So okay. someone who puts it stents in, not someone who opens up the heart and, and does a, a major surgery. Uh, that, that's the kind of things that, that I do. And so uh, what I tell you is that uh, it, it's, it's really because of the opioid crisis, there's been a huge uh, surge in demand for minimally invasive procedures because now people don't want to choose between a major surgery and opioid. They want to go with something that is a little less invasive. They don't have to stay in the hospital and get some a fair amount of pain relief without the risk of addiction or uh, mental cloudiness that they have with opioids. Now, just out of curiosity, with the huge uh, push to kind of not use those narcotics, um, and like you said, it was for a good reason. We were overusing them, definitely. Uh, do you find patients uh, get so afraid to use those interventions that uh, sometimes that's the best route, but they, you still can't convince them to, to do that? Um, or is that not something that you really even want to push at all if you don't have to? It depends. I mean, when you look at, first of all, not every narcotic uh, carries the same addiction in every patient. And the other part of it, too, is uh, I think most people realize this with common sense, but it's been shown to be true uh, from a scientific basis that uh, an 80-year-old uh, female has a lower risk of being addicted uh, to a narcotic than a 25-year-old uh, female or male, right? So as you get older, the risk of addiction goes down, and sometimes people do need those medications. That said, uh, we like to keep them at lower doses, okay? And there's a difference. If I just give somebody a, a low dose of an opioid uh, when they're older, send them out the door and say, have a nice life, I don't really think I've done uh, a service to that person. If I can do an intervention and get them off of that pill, uh, that's still worthwhile because guess what? Even grandma gets her medicine cabinet broken into. Uh, it, these things happen. We want to keep the pills out of the community. So we go with lower doses and we risk stratify the patients. The other part of it too is if they're afraid of getting an intervention done, I've done them more good, give them that pill for a short-term basis, send them over uh, to Trenton, to a physical therapist to uh, make some progress there in order to try to get off the pill with a more non-invasive means. So I, I, again, it's, it's not every situation is, is the same. We have, these are all complex interactions we have with patients. We have to look at the patient. And we also have to look at what their wishes are as far as moving forward and what the long-term risks are to them and society. Trenton, have you ever had any uh, experiences with someone being uh, using those narcotics and that being non-beneficial to their therapy? Have you had experience in that in the clinic or when you were doing your OCS certification kind of thing? Uh, absolutely. Um, when you're dealing with persistent pain or chronic pain patients, like a lot of them have gone down multiple avenues and they're taking some form or some dose of something. So um, like, I think that's a great kind of blending of what we were talking about before of when to communicate with Dr. Scarlett. Um, if our therapy interventions aren't helping that person wean off, that's when we contact him a lot of the times and say, you know, is there an intervention you can help us with that would help us with that transition away from that medication? Because you see it. So something uh, I'm always interested in, um, especially when we're talking about talking with PTs and other care providers, whether that be chiropractors, anesthesiologists, other doctors, are there any 
cases where providers will disagree on a course of a path for a patient. Um, and if there are, could you just give me an example of that and kind of how that interaction then goes if there's kind of a disagreement? Sure. Is that directed to me or Trenton? I was just going to say. <laughs> just, just from both your perspectives, I just can't imagine that every provider is always on the same page. And maybe they are. I mean, there's a lot of evidence-based research out on what is the best path forward for a lot of these uh, patients, but there are individual uh, cases, I'm sure, where you might disagree. And I'm just curious as to if you've ever had any like funny stories about uh, dealing with other providers or anything insightful that someone might want to know that, hey, um, there are different uh, opinions on how to treat certain conditions and um, your care providers have these conversations to try to figure out what's best for the patient. Sure. You know, Brady, what makes that complex is that most of the time you have a patient that comes in, say a 65 or 70 year old, and uh, they have arthritis of their spine. You get an MRI, they have arthritis of the spine, they have discs that are degenerated. They also have narrowing of the spine. And why is the spine narrowed? It's narrowed because their arthritis, arthritic joints, as well as the disc are encroaching upon the middle part of the spine. So uh, it's not like you look at the image, you look at their symptoms and, oh, it's, it's black and white. I mean, there's gray overlap between these things a, a lot of times. So um, I can tell you that I have had uh, disagreements with uh, physical therapists over time as far as like, well, they think maybe the pain is more, uh, you know, paraspinal musculature as compared to an arthritic joint. And the truth of the matter is we're probably both right. There's probably components of the pain that are from one or the other. And uh, basically, I'll defer to them on that because the treatment uh, that, that they're going to undergo with the physical therapist is going to be less invasive than anything I would probably do to treat the arthritic joint. Okay. So I would, and then if they don't have success with that within a logical course of time, then we move on and do, do what I wanted to do. But I don't tend to go jump to the more invasive uh, procedure if the physical therapist feels strongly that this could be uh, a muscle issue and that they feel that they can, can improve with physical therapy. And, and most patients, I think, are appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to go with the least invasive options. Now, sometimes there also might be a difference that the patient voices a concern about, you know, with my insurance, uh, you know, the course A is much more expensive than course B. Can we go with course B? And it's a little bit of a gray area. Then we'll go with what's most cost effective with the patient first. But usually it's number one, what's least invasive and number two, what's most cost effective. Uh, the other thing I will tell you about that is that particularly with the VertiFlex device that, you know, we, we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, there is some overlap in what uh, surgeons do, uh, major, you know, spine surgeons where they want to go in and do a uh, fusion instead of uh, the, the VertiFlex uh, procedure itself. And there, there's certain uh, things about the anatomy that would make a, a VertiFlex a more viable option uh, than not. And, and if the patient fits that uh, criteria, I tend to go with the VertiFlex device before I send them on for a fusion because you're talking about a much uh, less invasive device with a lower risk of complications and uh, you know, a faster healing period. So that it's kind of put it in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, I know that's a complex one. Um, but if you don't have anything, Trenton, on um, any of the previous stuff, we can move on to the VertiFlex procedure because I think it's a very interesting procedure that uh, 
kind of, we've been introduced to as a clinic and uh, Dr. Scarlett is uh, one of the experts at uh, doing these minimally invasive procedures. Um, so Dr. Scarlett, uh, you can get as in-depth as you want, but I guess to uh, the population of people that might have these problems, what is the VertiFlex procedure um, and why is it beneficial? I'm going to go back to that analogy I used earlier with uh, the cardiologist versus the cardiac surgeon, okay? So back in the 90s, uh, boy, the cardiac surgeons were extremely busy doing open heart uh, surgeries on, on everybody because when uh, a blood vessel in the heart was narrowed, uh, there really weren't stents around much to, to open those up. They had to go in and they had to put uh, you know, vein grafts or arterial grafts and bypass uh, where the occlusion was in the vasculature of the heart. Uh, what changed around the year 2000 was they started to develop stents and they were able to go in through the groin and, and go, an interventional cardiologist could go in and open that area up and allow for improved blood flow. The same things kind of happened with uh, you know, the spine. So uh, with the advent of the VertiFlex device, we don't have to go in and fuse people uh, we don't have to open them up and cut out the bones. We can actually go in when our spine is narrowed and we can place a stent that opens up from the posterior aspect of the spine and allows uh, the nerves, the spine that runs through the center of the, um, uh, of the backbone there to, to not be as compressed by arthritic joints, by ligaments, by discs. Uh, it, it really has uh, revolutionized how uh, how minimally invasive we can be uh, with providing relief from lumbar stenosis or narrowing of the spine. Um, I mean, I think that's the best analogy I can give you. And the, the recovery we're talking about here is is oftentimes a week. Sometimes if somebody, uh, you know, takes aspirin, takes blood thinner, and they have more bruising, they can be a little more tender for a couple of weeks. But what it does is it gives them uh, a shot at an improved function from lumbar stenosis without having to undergo uh, a laminectomy or a fusion, which you're talking uh, at least two months uh, of, of recovery with laminectomy versus you know six to 12 months with a fusion. So if we can get them to a similar degree of functionality with uh, less invasive, uh, faster recovery, I, I think it's, it's worthwhile for most people. Yeah, I think we have uh, a, a few patients in, in Grafton who have had that procedure and they are seem to be pretty happy from what I understand at least. You obviously seemed pretty impressed when we got the uh, the presentation about it. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any opinions? I don't know if you've seen any of the VertiFlex procedure patients yet. Uh, I actually got to go and shadow a surgery oh, that's right. of, of actually the implantation of the device, and um, you know, it was my my experience with it is I agree, it's a less invasive way to give somebody. Um, a potential for recovery without, you know, nearly as much on the post-operative end. And maybe Dr. Scarlett can elaborate on this too, but my understanding is that it's a reversible procedure as well, where it's, it's not permanent. So it gives you that secondary option to go to the more invasive procedures after if you need to. Is that, right? that, that, that is a, a huge advantage of it, is that uh, if we were to place this, uh, it gives somebody about an 80 to 85% chance of success of, of avoiding uh, a fusion or uh, avoiding a laminectomy. That said, uh, if they don't get the degree of relief that they're looking for, then they can still go on and have a laminectomy infusion. Uh, it doesn't 
uh, burn that bridge. Whereas if someone has a laminectomy infusion beforehand, uh, they can't go back and have a vertiflex. It's, it's uh, right. because the anatomy that we need to attach this uh, stent in place is no longer there. So uh, it's a logical step, I believe. There's certain uh, contraindications to it. People that have instability of the spine where uh, they lean forward, they lean back, their, their bones aren't uh, in a stable orientation. Uh, those people, the stent's not gonna stay in place and we send them on to, to have surgery. But uh, as far as just undergoing a, uh, the average person with stenosis undergoing the vertiflex uh, device does burning bridges and it gives them 80 to 85% chance of success. I'm not sure if I missed this, but is there a certain population, like a sweet spot of the population um, that it, it's more likely to work out for compared to not likely to work out for um, in terms of age and demographic and all that stuff? Well, Ray, I guess uh, what I tell you is people with lumbar stenosis, almost all of them are over the age of 65. There are okay. some people that are just born with narrow spines and they would have some success with this. I think I've put it in a 40 year old before uh, who, who actually did quite well. But uh, what, what I tell you is that the majority of people with this condition are, are 65 and older. So we're okay. talking mostly about the Medicare population. Um, the other part of it too is uh, depends on the patient's expectations, right? Uh, so what I tell you, if somebody wants to have this done and uh, their, their threshold for success is they wanna go out there and run a marathon, and it may not be the case. They're still going to have arthritis in their back. They're still going to have problems. If they want to walk their dog, well, this is a this is a great option for them. But the other part of that too is they might not be able to go jogging after their fusion either. So I mean, it's yeah. just it, those people are hard. It's it's hard to we can't make you a 65 year old 25 again, but we yeah. certainly can make them as active as a 65 year old as they can possibly be. That makes a lot of sense, and that's a great way to put it. Uh, that's got to be such a big part of everything is managing expectations for a lot of these procedures. And, and you just explained it perfectly why it's like, you can't, can't make someone younger. And, uh, that's kind of the, the long and short of it, but you can, uh, help them out and live a great life. Um, is, are there any other, uh, procedures that, you know, you've really, uh, we really like this Vertiflex procedure and you seem to, to believe in it. Um, are there any other procedures that uh, you commonly do in your clinic that you see a lot of? Oh, sure. So if somebody has uh, lumbar disc degeneration, lumbar um, di disc herniation, we'll, we'll do epidural steroid injections for them. And that's been around for you know years and years. Uh, we also will do something called a, a radiofrequency ablation, which is where we go in and we actually heat up the sensory nerves on arthritic joints in the spine. Uh, for somebody with with back pain, even when they sit, uh, they just from arthritic joints, we can we can knock out the nerves so they don't sense that pain as much. It doesn't affect any of their motor function. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we also, for people that have had surgery, uh, have a lot of scar tissue that's grown in uh, or haven't responded to back surgery, we can actually place a spinal cord stimulator, which is a basically a wire that goes in the epidural space above where they've had surgery, which blocks the pain from, from below. And uh, that, that works real well for, for a lot of people. And that technology has really taken off over the last five years. Uh, those implantations we're putting in today are much, much better than they were even prior to 2015. Uh, and the last thing we do is uh, for people that, uh, for whatever reason, don't respond to a spinal cord stimulator or have horrible cancer pain, 
uh, particularly the cancer pain patients, it's, it's uh, really amazing because uh, the doses of oral narcotics that it takes to get those people comfortable, most of the time puts them to sleep, makes them dysfunctional. They can't really communicate with their family. Um, we can put in something uh, called an interthecal pump, uh, which is a pump that goes underneath the skin, but is filled uh, with, with medication. And you can basically gives them about 300 times more potency than an oral pill, but it's without the mental cloudiness, without the side effects, without the constipation. So they're able to spend their last days in better communication with their family, uh, as opposed to uh, in a, you know, a bed uh, drilling on themselves. So it's, it's uh, all of that uh, is very, uh, we, we do all those things and it's, it's very worthwhile and helpful for people. So uh, pretty much every podcast I do with a PT, um, you know, one of the things that always comes up is uh, it's, it's always easier to treat something if they come in sooner and they attack the problem before it gets really bad or that chronic pain starts lasting uh, years and years and years. And it takes a long time to reverse all that. Would you say it's the same kind of thing? Like how soon would you like a, a patient to come see you before it gets really, really bad for, for a really long period of time? Right. If somebody knows, notices a pain that's, first of all, if it's completely debilitating, yes, get in to see me right away. Uh, <laughs> if it's nagging pain that uh, they're questioning whether or not to come in, uh, I would give it two weeks. If it's lasting more than two weeks, come in, we can get an evaluation done for you. And uh, frankly, there's been a couple of times that that's occurred where we'll do a thorough workup, right? And uh, we found a couple of patients, early stages of cancer, that we send them off to the oncologist and it's been uh, just because they listen to their body. So it's not, sometimes uh, pain can, uh, isn't always just benign pain. So I think it's important that we all listen to our bodies and uh, we seek adequate medical care uh, as soon as possible. Trent, do you have any other questions for Dr. Scarlett at all? Well, just, <clears throat> I know we've talked about the Vertiflex um, procedure a lot and mm -hmm. I've, I love the idea of that, you know, logical next step before the permanent fix. And um, my question is, you know, so we've talked about the post-operative care and everything, but are you noticing any negatives with it or is it all pretty positive? The negative is just when it, when it doesn't work and people are disappointed and they have to go on for okay. surgery. Um, I, I would tell you that uh, if I've been disappointed with any outcome of it, it's sometimes where people are so deconditioned that they're just not, they haven't been able to stand and walk for more than three minutes for five years, right? And so we put these things in and, and it, yeah, it's not that they're as limited by pain, they're just limited by being deconditioned. So that's something that's changed over the past three years we've been doing this. And, and those are the people that I send to you, Trent, and to get them uh, a little bit more core muscle strength, to get them conditioned, to get up and get moving again. And I think that's made a huge difference in uh, the outcomes here. People might, you know, be disappointed because they can't, they're not getting their functionality back as quickly as they'd want to, but if they got to go to PT to get that back, it's worthwhile. They've still avoided surgery. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's something that really has changed over time. And it's, you know, and I wouldn't say it's a disappointment with the procedure. It's just being realistic about uh, how quickly people can get back. Right. And I think that's a great point too, that you were mentioning. Sometimes it's where you were at before. So going off of Brady's point, how long the issue has been going on. Um, we see that too, you know, the normal interventions we would normally see working aren't, um, you know, so just early identification is something we're working on a lot and sounds like you guys are really aware of that too. So, uh, trying anything else you got? 
no, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Scarlett. Um, it's always great talking to you and learning from you. Um, and I enjoy working together. I look forward to it. Doc, Dr. Scarlett, I would like you to um, kind of let everybody know all the information they would need to know um, if they want to come see you um, and uh, just where they can find you. And uh, if you've got a website um, that you want to give out and we can always, you can always get that over to us and we can post that with the podcast and, and on everything else. But if you could just give us a quick rundown of your practice and where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, I am a transition period here. And this next week, I'm winding down. So my last week with advanced pain management. And uh, I'll be starting with uh, the group called Wisconsin Spine and Pain. Uh, Dr. Jung is already, uh, one of my colleagues is already on that website. And uh, my name will be added to that within the next week. And uh, the number in the, for the Sheboygan area that they can call for Wisconsin Spine and Pain is 920-204-6758. And they can call for an appointment. And we'll be seeing people in person after December 1st. Uh, before then, we will be doing virtual visits uh, as we're getting up and running off the ground. Uh, but we're happy to, to see anybody. I know it's really frustrating right now getting in to see healthcare workers because of the COVID crisis. We will have protocols in place uh, to deal with that. But I don't want anyone, I want everybody to know that we're certainly not shutting the doors, not seeing people long term. We're going to get people back in uh, because there, I think there are a lot of people with chronic pain that have not been treated, particularly in the last six months with the COVID crisis. And we're going to get people back in. It might be wearing masks and glasses, but we're going to be seeing and we're going to be taking care of people. Too many people have been living with things for too long this year. Yep, I agree. That could be said for a lot of things this year. Um, so, Dr. Scarlett, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and if anybody's listening that does have uh, chronic pain issues, Dr. Scarlett is a great resource to use, especially if you're in the Wisconsin area. Um, and uh, if you have any questions uh, or have any kind of problem finding Dr. Scarlett, feel free to reach out to Freedom and we will get you in contact with him. Uh, Dr. Scarlett, again, thank you so much. Trenton, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we appreciate your time and that you uh, took the time to come on and, and do this with us. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day. You too. You too. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing one-on-one -on -one comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services, including women's health, chronic pain treatment, TMJ, and more. With four locations in Fox Point, Grafton, Brookfield, and McGuanago, Wisconsin, more information at freedompt.com.